Luck on Sunday, proudly sponsored by our Bastiat Cruel Dubai. Welcome to the Luck on Sunday podcast, a weekly audio digest of all the best bits of Luck on Sunday, free to air every Sunday from nine o'clock that brings you the best guests and insight from around the racing world. My first guest, he has got truly stuck in. He was lucky enough to enjoy a classic runner in 2005 with Rebel Rebel who finished fourth. In a guineas. Two years later, he was winning it with Cockney Rebel. Since when, he's invested, and he's invested hard. And he is now the proprietor of two of the most historic stables in Newmarket, particularly with the relatively recent acquisition of the great and historic Sefton Lodge Yard, which means he has a stable now either side of the great Sir Mark Prescott. His uh, retained trainer is Richard Spencer. They've built up a string of 70 horses. They had a glut of runners across the country yesterday, and he seems to be enjoying it more than ever. He is, of course, Rebel Racing's Phil Cunningham. Phil, welcome to Luck on Sunday. Morning. Uh, you are getting stuck in, aren't you? You love this game. Yeah, it's going well. Going well, Nick. Uh, we've expanded uh, over the last three years, um, basically off the back of the success that we've had on the track. And, uh, yeah, sales time's coming up again uh, this week at Doncaster, so we'll be back there again. And a lot of owners, they just leave it to their trainers or leave it to their agents. They take racing as a passing interest and they make a bit more money, they, they spend a bit more money, but it seems a bit different for you. It's a sort of total immersion thing, really. Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a hobby that's expanded um, tremendously. Um, I've been very, very lucky to go from the, the racing fan that would queue up for some of the great trainers' autographs and photographs like uh, a, lot, a lot of the lads do now, um, and then within a short period of time, sort of to, to have some of them as great mates and go for dinner with. So it's, uh, yeah, it's living the dream, living the dream. Where did the dream all start? Dad had horses when I was younger, um, and so we had a little bit of involvement there and shares in horses. And uh, probably the first thing I wanted to do when I left college was to, to get a racehorse with a, with a few mates. And so my first horse was 1998, and uh, yeah, 10 of us got together, a couple of grand in each, and, and we bought, bought a yearling, trained by Jack Banks. Uh, he had six runs as a two-year-old and finished second on six occasions. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, we had to wait a little bit longer for, uh, for our first success. A um, bit later on, then um, we, we bought Rebel Rebel. I suppose it's the more significant horse, uh, or first significant horse that we had. And there were six of us involved in that. He finished second in the, in the new market, Guinness, fourth in the Irish. Uh, trained by Neville Callahan, sold him off to America. And pretty much I took my share of that, went back to the sales at Doncaster and bought Cockney Rebel. So uh, I'm a lucky owner, very lucky owner. Come back to Cockney Rebel in a minute. I just wanted to talk to you about that initial experience with, with 10 friends, yeah. not that long after leaving college. Yeah. It sounds like great fun at a great time of your life. Have you ever been able to replicate that kind of sense of camaraderie? Since? Yeah, well, I, I think what happened, um, obviously there were six of us involved in, in Rebel Rebel, and then... Having Cockney Rebel on my own was great. It was a great experience for the family. But 
yes, you know, you, when you're going to the lesser meetings on your own, it's it's more fun going with uh, you know some mates of uh, like-minded interest, having the day out and the night out, and that's what racing is really all about. And I think big thing recently about syndicates. I mean, it is an expensive sport. It's an expensive hobby, and when you're talking about people paying it out of net money, mm -hmm. um, you know, you, you need to sort of be a man of significant wealth to, to own them on your own and strings on your own. So it's a, it's a great way for people to get involved and, and enjoy it, I, I feel. And the syndicates that we run now as Rebel Racing sort of have a, a maximum of 20 shares. So the, well, like 5% of five horses would be our typical sort of makeup. Um, and they're all friends and mates of friends and it's expanding beyond that uh, as, as we go along and as opposed to have the more success on the track. Tell me a bit about your your business that you built up and and uh, which enabled you to outside to be able, of yeah racing. which enabled yeah, you sure, to, to sure, do this. Sure, yeah. is my business and, and and a lot of my supporters with Rebel Racing now are mates, mainly that I've met through through insurance and they're a great band of lads and they've been tremendously supportive. Some of them aren't even interested in racing, but they've done it to to support us. Um, and so the yeah, insurance has been great. I specialise in haulage insurance mm -hmm. um, throughout the UK, and um, yeah, we've we've expanded. We turn over. So around 120 million premium this year, employ 150 people in Chelmsford, and um, yeah, business started from scratch in 2002. So it's, it's gone well along the side, and yeah, so it allowed me to to really sort of, in, I suppose, engage more fully in my pastime or what was a pastime, which is uh, yeah now becoming uh, a significant interest in our lives. If you could take yourself back to the 16-year-old the, the Phil Cunningham and show you your life now, could you, could you have believed it? Could you have envisaged it? Did you always have an entrepreneurial spirit? Always a racing fan, but not from a racing family. If I, if I had my life again with the opportunity or, or the finances behind it to do it, I'd love to be a trainer. Would you? Yeah. I'd love to be a horse trainer. And what, what would appeal to you about that? Uh, it's just the thrill, the thrill of winning the race. I mean, we've been very lucky to have the group ones, and I think because of that... Um, it makes you want to, to do that again and repeat the experience. But I, I get just as much excitement out of winning, or possibly not just as much, but I get great excitement when we've got runners in, in class sixes around Chelmsford and, and, and the like. It's, it's the thrill of winning the race. But what, what is it about the training side of it that you find so, so appealing rather than just the owning of the horses? Uh, it, it, I suppose it's the ability. Uh, I, I could never be a trainer now, don't get me wrong, and I leave all of that side of things to Richard. He's a tremendous horseman. I, I think you get people that come into it like myself that might want to train a few horses but I think you need to you need to grow up you need to be born into it I mean the things that these guys spot that we'd never spot what they know about a horse I'd never be able to learn uh, at this stage of my life um, but just the involvement being involved I love the race planning I like being at the sales I like picking the horses and you know there's nothing better than having a great two-year-old winner especially late on in the season I mean it, it makes the winter just go so quickly and you've had great two-year-old winners the last couple of years as well with Raja Singh and, uh, and Rumble in the Jungle. We have. We've been a little bit slower to start this year, but I think we have a different type of horse. So I think the next couple of months are going to be very exciting for us. We had a double on Friday. Um, we were very unlucky yesterday with, with a few that we expected to come in. Mm -hmm. But, um, I mean, I, I never in my wildest dreams imagined that we'd have seven runners on a day like we had yesterday. Three beaten favourites, but it just brings you back down to earth on Friday with the double. It's what a level of this game is. Uh, are you ambitious in a sense of demanding high standards of, of Richard and the enterprise itself? Uh, I, I feel um, they put so much pressure on themselves, uh, trainers, and I've been very fortunate to, to uh, have a good few mates. And we were saying earlier, the, uh, the cold list, you don't have to tell them how long it is since <laughs> they've had their last winner. 
and the stress that some of the lads are under, they put themselves under, it's, it's, not, it's not good. Well, I've spoken to a lot of um, successful businessmen on this program who yeah. ended up owning a lot of horses, and they find it quite hard to separate their sort of focused, analytical business brain from the slightly more nuanced business of owning, owning racehorses. Have you found that you have been able to do that? I think so, because I think you've got to take a realistic approach. If you go into it thinking you're going to make money, you won't. Very, very unlikely. I've been like, tremendously lucky. But if you look at the prize money status that it is now, unless you're selling, unless you're winning group races and top group races, because even the lower levels now, what's it, 14, 15 grand for winning a listed race, and how hard it is to actually do that, that doesn't even pay your keep for the year. And the ancillary costs outside of training, I mean, the training bills now are only probably 60% of what it costs to run a horse for the year. It's an expensive hobby. Um, so I think if you went into it thinking that you're going to make money, you, you won't. And the best way to do it, I think, is if, if you're, um, unless your own country is and, and <laughs> it is your livelihood, it's through syndicates. You've got five percent share in five horses for sort of the smaller end of the scale that we do, fifteen thousand pounds. Mm. That includes the keep for the year as well. You've got a good chance, a good chance of getting a little bit back. And it takes the pressure off. It's got to be fun. You can't go into this expecting to make money. Um, and unfortunately, that's what happens. Success ex creates expectation. Mm. So Richard's first two seasons, I mean, we only had um, nine two-year-olds two years ago, and we won the Coventry. We had 18 two-year-olds last year. We win the Malcolm. There's 40 in the yard this year, and we haven't had a group winner yet. I think we will have one before the end of the year, but everyone's waiting for it now, rather than looking back thinking, how on earth did we do that? Luck on Sunday, proudly sponsored by Albasti Equiwell Dubai. Welcome back. You're watching Luck on Sunday. It is simply impossible, however long this programme is today, to do justice to the excellent racing at York. But we are going to try and take a canter through it as best we can and add our thoughts to some of those brilliant performances. Dave Yates and Phil Cunningham still with me. What a week. Phil, Dave, has uh, already articulated what he thought of, of, of York's Ebor Festival. There seems to be a general feeling as we bask in its afterglow, and we had two lovely sunny days uh, the last couple of days as well, that it was one of the weeks of the season. I think it was one of the weeks of any season. It, it was amazing. I mean, you know, the, um, there's, there's always been that thing about um, York being the Ascot of the North, but that will be switched around soon, won't it, to say that Ascot is the York of the South. Um, it was a tremendous meeting from start to finish. Uh, I think, I mean, quite apart from the racing, I think York do things... I think York present the template of how race courses should be run in... Britain in 2019. I think it's very utilitarian. It's made, you know, people often talk about the price of champagne. Now, I, I don't know about you, Phil. I, I can't stand the stuff personally. I certainly don't drink any uh, on the race course uh, when I'm driving a motor vehicle away uh, from the site. Uh, but it, it, it is evidently a, uh, a race course where you don't have to be at the top of the pyramid to enjoy right. very good facilities. Gone. You're going to. So there's an element of affordable luxury yeah. about about it. I, I think that there's a, there, you know, a, again we tend to think in horse racing, especially now, when when we have things like the Friday nights at Newmarket and best dressed lady and indeed gentleman competitions. Um, we sometimes people sneer at that almost as if in the 50s, 60s and 70s, all people did was stand by the paddock making notes, notes. saying, oh, nice type, you know, 
plenty of daylight underneath him and all that sort of stuff. And that just isn't true. And I like the fact that York do things to entertain everyone who goes there. You know, there's, there was actually, the, I think on the Friday, the band pretty much played between races, which was a bit distracting in the press room. But, you know, there's a band after racing, there's lots going on uh, to keep people entertained. And I think that whilst the absolute purists would sneer at it to an extent and think, well, I, I don't want a band, I don't want a best-dressed lady competition, I want people to concentrate on the horses. I think the vast, vast majority of people, and especially those who live in the real world, would say that these are very welcome developments. And I just think the engagement at York exceeds any other race course, Phil. For me, I was walking out of the place yesterday fully 45 minutes after the last race. Yeah. It was absolutely humming. No one was in a hurry to go, but it was a lovely atmosphere. It wasn't an edgy atmosphere. It was a lovely atmosphere, people just soaking up what they'd seen. And, and that, I just don't, I don't get that from quite from any other track. No, I think, I think you're right. I mean, obviously, um, there was a lot of bad press last year with uh, violence and stuff around the crowd. But totally, you're right. There's absolutely no, no feeling of that at all throughout the whole of the week. And obviously, there's lots of alcohol consumed, yeah. but no, no trouble whatsoever. That was yeah, the champagne, but I never went into it, but just the, the echo that was coming, coming yeah. from there was great. But one thing I will say, from an owner's experience, um, what's very, very good there is within 150 metres, you can go from the, the owner's bar down to the parade ring, pre-parade ring, so really we don't see too far away from there. But like I say, some of the other meetings, like mentioned at Ascot, obviously there's such a huge place. It's, uh, yeah, it's quite a job if you've got multiple runners sort of getting around to the different areas. York are magnificent. We don't need to deliver an infomercial for, for your race course on this on this program. The racing did that for itself during the course of the week, and we'll we'll just take you through a few of the highlights. Why not start with the Judmont International, which, in the wake of what ensued, got rather forgotten. You know, it is one of the signature races of the week. Crystal Ocean couldn't win, but he was beaten potentially, Dave, by a very good horse, and it was heartening to see a middle distance three-year-old establish himself in the shape of Japan. Yeah, I mean if we wind the clock back to May, well, when this horse ran and disappointed in the Dante Aidan O'Brien had seven of the twelve, didn't he, in the Investec derby we had the likes of Broom, Anthony Van Dyke, this horse of course, and at the time we didn't know, that they all finished in something of a heap, this, this horse wasn't beaten far in the race uh, and subsequent to that Anthony Van Dyke obviously beaten in the Irish equivalent run by one by Sovereign whilst the rest of them seem to have stayed pretty much where they are Japan has taken some big strides forward hasn't he the, the, the win in the, the Ascot Derby the King Edward VII uh, the uh, Grand Prix de Paris on Bastille Day and then this you know it, I, I, Aiden. Aidan O'Brien tends to avoid questions of which is the best of yours because I think he doesn't want to denigrate the ones that are left out. But I think even Aidan had to say he's got the best yeah. form now, and, and that's beyond doubt, isn't and it? And he's got his 10 furlong group one, which means, of course, he is now a viable stallion prospect, yeah. and it could be the Irish champion stakes. I thought Alcombe was very unlucky. Mm. I think they ran the race again. I'd, I'd back that. He got chopped for him. He's a long-striding yeah. horse, and he couldn't quite get his momentum up, could he, Phil? No, he was tra trapped in a bit behind, but then once he got a bit of a gap, he came through, but it was a little bit too late. But um, I'd, I'd be definitely backing him if they ran that race again. I spoke to Mark Johnson about Alarquam, and he, 
he was quite philosophical. I think he sort of felt that the horse had shown that now they can kind of look forward to every time he runs because he is of that, uh, really of that calibre. Yeah, I think that's a fair point to make. He certainly didn't get the brakes uh, in that race, did he? And whilst it, it's a double-edged sword, that isn't it? Connections would come away disappointed that things didn't turn out for him, but at least would go away thinking, well, you know, we've got certainly got a horse who can make an impression in. The, the top level races at that trip for the rest of the year. And I'll talk about Crystal Ocean because, you know, Sir Michael Stout is an intense competitor. You know, mm. he's not like getting beaten in these races, but even as you pointed out by his own standards, and in the interview with Lydia after the race, he was uh, quite terse. I don't yeah, think yeah. he was very pleased to have been beaten. No, no, uh, indeed. You know, he's, uh, you know, you, you, you never get a, a, a rich feast as a journalist when you see quotes from Sir Michael, that's no secret, but he was, uh, yeah, he was pretty cheesed off uh, that he'd been beaten after that, uh, you know, I think that, uh, I, I didn't think that Crystal Ocean had any particular excuses, uh, you know, some people pointed the finger at James Doyle afterwards, but you're riding a horse who uh, is a 10 furlong winner, who has finished second in the St. Ledger and has shown form on a par with his 10 furlong uh, efforts over further, I think you're entitled to give that horse an aggressive ride. What so, for me, I, you know, I thought it was unfortunate that he was beaten, but I, I wouldn't apportion any blame to the jockey. What do you think, Phil? I think it's difficult when they blame jockeys. Uh, they can't get it right all the time, can they, really? Um, it must be the, t it's the toughest game. They're heroes or, or, or villains all the time, aren't they, really? But isn't that like any professional sport? It, it, it is, but I suppose this one man on his own for one race, that race not ever going to be run again, so they get it wrong. They don't get the chance to go out and play better the following week. Um, yeah, it's tough for them. Because they're not riding the same horse in the same race, no. the whereas with a footballer, they're essentially, the That's repetition it. is more comparable. Is that and what you're saying? Yeah, and it'll be, the, it'll be the, the, the big races and the classics that they'll be remembered for. That's quite an interesting point, that, because often we say, well, why can't we... Why can't we slag off a jockey for a bad ride when people criticise footballers, cricketers, cricketers especially at the moment, the last, yeah. the last couple of days? Um, it's, it's quite an interesting point Phil's touched on there, and one I haven't heard expressed like that before. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that one's perfectly... I think one is right, let's say perfectly entitled, that's ridiculous. One is right to criticise uh, sportsmen, sportswomen, practitioners, when we feel they've made a mistake. You know, that's our job, and I think that in... In racing, I think they can get a little bit touchy about it sometimes. You know, like, we, we all get criticised in our professional lives. Yeah, we definitely do. And, and you know, you, you can't be too thin-skinned about it. If you did, you'd jack it in and do something else. Um, and and your, your overall professional status generally means you sort of deserve the job that you've got, whatever line that might be in. Um, but... I, in this instance, and I've said this many times before, particularly in the fine margins of uh, of horse racing, you know, a, a a great ride or a rubbish ride can be decided by a head or a neck or a short head or a nose. Yeah. And, and, I, and I, that's one thing, I've said it a million times before, and I'll no doubt given the opportunity to say it many times again, that that is something I think that everyone, I, I think that's a trap that lots, that too many people fall into in horse racing. That was the Jumlons International. Japan was the winner. Crystal Ocean was second. It has crossed Crystal Ocean, his place at the top of the 
world thoroughbred rankings, which I, I know you all love. We'll come back to that later on in the programme. Let's talk about Enable, because she's at the top of those now by dint of her victory, and her biggest victory yet in terms of winning margin, over her old adversary, Magical. Frankie Dottori set perfect, even fractions on Enable. The sectional times told you that he didn't give her a hard race, yet still she managed to win yet another Group 1 by daylight. Now, Phil, I know this is something you wanted to touch upon because you went right down to the to the side of the paddock to see her wash down area, etc. And you said you hadn't seen anything quite like this. No, the, the, just the amount of crowds of people that were there. She's a superstar. And racing needs superstars. All sports need superstars. And I don't think there could be anybody other than the Coolmore Connections that uh, wanted to see her get beat. Um, oh, it was magnificent. Absolutely magnificent. And th there was just a a hint wasn't there, a furlong and a half out that Magical might come and put it down to her but Frankie Dottori's judgement of pace the clock told you his judgement of pace was perfect here and he, he did not get drawn into any tactical nonsense Absolutely you know, the, the, uh, the way that this race unfolded uh, he, he's, you know, yet again we seem to say it every, every week, he's got things right it, it, was a, it was a great occasion this because it uh, you feared that it might be something of a May Day parade uh, for Enable. Her odds were, was she 4-1 to one on, I think? Um, and obviously facing just the three opponents. But there was an element of drama about the race. A furlong and a half out, you did wonder whether uh, Magical was going to lay it down to Enable. And the, what's on your screen now, Dottori afterwards was really choked, wasn't he? I mean, he, he actually... He actually he cried during the post-race interview. Uh, I think whatever effect she is having on Dottori, she does seem to be enabling, pun intended, him, Phil, to, to show a little more depth as regards his, his feeling for the horses. Yeah, I mean, I, I've, I've seen and heard it. He'll, he'll be in there probably this morning. He, he goes in the following day when nobody's about, sees the horses. Uh, I mean, I, I don't think he's ever ridden with such consistency. I mean, he's in tremendous form, isn't he? Has he ridden much for you? Uh, bits and pieces, yeah, he's great. Good information back. Uh, one of our main work rider, Mike, Michael Hill, was best mates with Frankie, so um, obviously they're always around together. I just think, it, I, I can't ever remi remind, remember seeing him ride with such consistency as he is now. Like, I think it was Bruff Scott I heard recently say he's, he's just not making mistakes. And that comes with the benefit of huge experience. Enable winning her 10th Group 1 race, her 13th race in all. She's only tasted defeat on one occasion and probably oughtn't to have been beaten on that occasion either. Uh, tremendous performance. And it really, it was, the, it was the response to her that was the, the touching part of that. Yeah, absolutely. Again, this is, you know, I, I, I really want to avoid the sort of cliche about the, the, the knowledgeable and passionate York crowd. But there, avoid it, then. There, there is something about the reception that these horses seem to get there, and certainly with, with Frankel when he won mm -hmm. the international, obviously there was a huge human interest element of that with Sir Henry Cecil being in very poor health um, that, that was quite separate to the achievements of, uh, of the horse himself. But with Enable, it, it, it's a similar sort of thing. I suppose we all knew that this was... Uh, her UK swan song. Um, the, the, the interesting thing, I think, it, it's 
<coughs> the thing I like about it is that it's not just after the race. They're absolutely mobbed. They 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 watch her everywhere she goes, and I you know it's a that's a huge that's a huge part of. Uh, these big meetings, isn't it? You know, when you you can see there the the crowds that are that don't make use of the very reasonable champagne prices, but go to the paddock to acknowledge a great horse. That 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 adds a great deal. Well, she was brilliant, uh, but we knew she was capable of that. We thought that Batash was capable of doing something special at York, but we couldn't be certain because he'd been to York twice before and not quite performed with the brilliance that he had elsewhere at uh, Chantilly and at, uh, at Goodwood. He was absolutely spectacular the day before yesterday. He lowered Deja's track record. It's one of the great iconic course records anywhere in the world. And he had the perfect setup as well. Ornate the yellow, soldiers call the grey. He gets a draft in behind and it all worked out perfectly on a slick-as-you-like track. I loved this. I thought this was fantastic, Phil. Uh, performance of the week for me. I'm so pleased for, for Charlie and all the team as well, because he's not been the easiest to train. And unbelievable, we had his half-brother. Did you? <laughs> couldn't win a race. <laughs> and it just shows you the difference sometimes, obviously, between the different horses from the same families. But, um, yeah, what he's had to do um, to get this horse right, um, it's just a relief. You could just see the relief in the whole team. I love Charlie Hills' line straight after the race. I thought that was very cool. Lydia, like, bang, straight after the race. Huge race for him. Probably one of the most important successes in his career. And he just turned around and went, see, he loves you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I, this, this was the... It, it was, never mind the performance, it was, the, it was the, the story of the meeting, wasn't it? That those of us who love our redemption, whether it's the prodigal son... A Winter's Tale, La Fanchula del West. Those redemptive stories are what get us going. And this for a horse who had failed here twice before. Loads of experts calling him the nearly man, including myself. Remember that one from six at the top level. Uh, and to answer it like that, it's mm. just absolutely wonderful stuff. I got, I, sad though it may sound. I got a massive thrill when the when the announcement came over and the winning time, 50, and as soon as he said five and you realised that Deja's track record had gone, you thought, this is this is a great moment. Uh, trainers on the line now. Morning, Charlie Hills. Morning, Nick. How are you? Uh, very, very good. I mean, that's that was just incredibly special, uh, Batash's performance. Uh, most importantly, how's the horse come out of the race? Um, yeah, he seems nice and fresh and well. Um, he lost 13 kilos. Uh, but uh, no, that's good. Eating up, couldn't be more pleased with it. So, in your mind, Charlie, and we've talked about this a bit, but in your mind now, looking back on it, what's been the key? What produced this on Friday? Why hadn't we seen it in the Nunfoot before? But, uh, well, look, I mean, he's he's now more experienced. He's, he's had more racing, and uh, just this year, he's, you know, as soon as he got back uh, from his holidays, he's just been such an easy horse to deal with. Um, you know, he's like a little pet really now you can do anything with him he's just a pleasure to train and to be around so is he easier to ride at home as well because you, know, you, you said he always had that sort of tear away capacity in him um, yeah he's, you know we've uh, Victoria's been riding him out this year and uh, she seems to be getting on really well with him um, you know he can be can be keen in his work and uh you know, he always just has a lead horse which he can follow. Then, just goes he just goes past the lead horse, you know, on the bridle. But 
no, he's 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 a pretty easy horse horse to handle with. Have you ever put more more thought and preparation into the training of any other horse? Uh, probably not. You know, it's, it's attention to detail, um, especially on race day. You know, he, he obviously loves he loves the, his normal routine, um, which is really important. So, you know, and obviously Bob gets on superbly well with him. That's probably we're just looking at the shot of him coming in. Bob's the gentleman on the left there who is uh, who's been with you, your family for many many years now. Yes, he has. You know, he, he also looked after Dark Angel, uh, right his sire. You know, so there's a great bit of um, history between them, really. And this is a great bit of history as well, lowering the track record that had been set by another horse in the in the Sheikh Hamdan Silks. And I noticed Angus Gold, who had hitherto resisted temptations to compare him with Deja, was 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 having to concede that that, that he could realistically do that. Um, it's very hard to compare horses. You know, I grew up with Deja, um, you know, back in the nineties, and he was a fantastic horse, wasn't he? Um, you know, when he won the Nunthorpe, he just blew them away. Didn't? It was so impressive. Uh, so it's hard to compare them, but you know, it's just Batash has got such amazing speed. I think it's sort of mid mid race really where he really shows you know he really dominates um, the race. You know, he just seems to put it to bed at the two furlong marker. Now, Charlie, after the race, you were saying you you could you could bash on and have a go at the the Abbe again, which he was so spectacular in a couple of years ago. You were even talking about taking him to America. Have you have you fleshed out those thoughts in your mind since then? Well, I've obviously got to speak to Sheikh Handam, uh, which I haven't done yet. Uh, but I think you know we'll see how he is, you know, this week, um, and try and probably make a decision uh, next week, really, to where we go. But obviously, we've got that race in Ireland, which um, the Flying Five. The Flying Five, yes, exactly. You know, there's good timing um, for that race, and then I think it's a month on till the to the Abbey. So, um, you know, the races are all planned out there. Uh, but I think the horses, you know, is going to tell us really what what um, what route to take. We'll just see how he is. I know, I know the Breeders' Cup's an event that you're that you're very fond of, and you've had success there before. And obviously, the history there with with Deja getting beaten in extraordinary circumstances back in in 1990 does does that appeal? Um, it, it really does to me. Uh, I'd love to see him on, you know, on, a, on a turning five. You know, he's such an athletic horse. Um, you know, you should. I would have thought you know a bend would really suit him. You know, because he's so nimble. Uh, so you know, it's obviously. A valuable race. I just, you know, the way the horse is this year, I think if ever there's a year to do it, this this, this is the year, really, because you know, he's in such good form with himself. Um, but we just need to speak to the owner. And that would be on the turf, the turf sprint at uh, yeah. uh, over five at, at Santa Anita. Yep. Um, Charlie, thanks so much for, for chatting to us. Well done on Friday and, and a great double as well with, with Pogo in the last and looking forward to seeing Batash again. Yeah, no, thanks very much, Nick. Thanks. Cheers. Charlie Hills, and I think he he's keen to to go and have a an international campaign with the horse, but he's uh, he's going to have to persuade the owner. I think Phil. I think so. He's got to do it, though, hasn't he? Well, I think when you've got a gelding, and as he says, he's exactly. five and he's in his prime. If you're ever going to do it, this is probably the time to do I, it. I think so. I'd love to see him go to America. And we saw, you know, Enable did it last year and came back. I think the di- difference with her. I think John Gosling's been very sensible, saying she's going to have done enough after the arc. Yeah, we could go again, but we don't want to get greedy. I think there is that fine line, isn't there, between getting enough out of a horse and then knowing when, when, when that else Yeah, and like you say, she's got paddock value, he hasn't. No. And so he's... He's got could, to go. Could, could, be around, could be around for a, for a few years yet. Let's talk about yesterday's feature race, if we can. 
um, which was the Skybet Ebel, first time the race has been run for a million pounds, and we got a, a terrific running of the race as well. Ireland have got a great record in it, and certainly have had in the last 10, 15 years. Tony Martin's won it, and Willie Mullins has, has taken the race. Uh, Aidan O'Brien's won it. Now, Ger Lyons can add his name to that honour roll, courtesy of Mustajir, who'd been placed in the race the previous year, Colin Keane doing the steering, the stables having a great run of things, and this horse won, I thought, a competitive handicap, Yatesy, with quite commanding authority in the end for all that Red Galileo was chasing him down quite hard late. Yeah, I think that's a fair point. I think there were three parts of the length between the two horses at uh, the finish, but I agree with you. I think that the, uh, the winner probably had more in hand than that margin of victory might suggest. Very interesting this. Obviously, the, the, um, a, a, a strong presence this week on the Knavesmire of representatives of the Melbourne Cup, and Mustajir is now bound for Flemington. Um, Australian bloodstock, interestingly, bought it. Quite a bold call, isn't it? Mm. That, that they, they bought into this horse a 16-to-1 shot for the Ebor um, in the anticipation, perhaps, that he might turn into uh, a, a horse for the Melbourne Cup. Um, I, uh, I asked David Spratt afterwards, the, the uh, principal owner of Mustajir, whether in the past life he'd been a second-hand car salesman in, in order to persuade Australian bloodstock to buy uh, a well, share he, in this horse. He had been placed in this race last yeah, year. So. Yeah, but he was a 16-to-1. And he was going to get in. Yes, but he was a 16-to-1 shot, and, and to persuade someone they ought to buy uh, a share in a horse for the Melbourne Cup, I think it would still take a bit of, a bit of doing. You must get horses put to you, horses in training put to you all the time. Phil, and, try, and you try and sell a few horses as well. Yeah, we'd be abroad. more sellers, more yeah. sellers in the horses in training rather than buyers. And, uh, and, and but w- at the moment, given the given the amount of money on offer for the cup, given the amount of European horses who dominate the the first nine, ten, eleven placings in the race last year, if you have a horse like this, you, you're potentially sitting on a gold mine. I, I think so, and obviously the addition, oh, sorry, the increased prize money they've now done for the longer distance races here. I think obviously it becomes more on people's radar and more of a target. Mm. So um, yeah, I think you'll see a lot more British-based horses going on to uh, the, the longer distance races around the world because there'll be more bred for the distances now, uh, or purchased and trained specifically for it. And a great bit of business from uh, the connections of this horse. They picked it, picked him up for fifty grand out of Owen Burroughs's yard, and yeah. he's won goodness knows how much now. Absolutely, and. Uh, they picked him up for 50 grand. They've sold, a, I suppose, a majority share in him for a, a good deal more than that, I would imagine. And now uh, now he goes to Chris Lee's, doesn't he? Mm. Uh, he goes into quarantine, I think, in the middle of next month, the 15th or something, and then Caulfield Cup and Melbourne Cup. So, uh, yeah, a, a, some achievement. And I suppose at this point, it's to, we're, you know, part one is in the bag, isn't it? And, now the, the rest of it still to be achieved. I think we ought to, to major on, on Ger Lyons here as well. And, and it's not as though this is a, an up-and-coming trainer. This is a trainer who's been at the top of his game for a long time. But people sometimes have those sort of breakthrough seasons where they are taking the public's consciousness of them to the next level. And perhaps that's it. With Siskin, the group one winner last week, and, and this horse winning the Evil. Yeah, he's a tremendous trainer. And he even cuts his own grass as well. He? <laughs> <laughs> he said yesterday, as soon as the race was over... Great stuff, I'm off to cut the grass. I hope he's finished cutting the grass and joins us on the line now. Joe, good morning. Hi, Nick, how are you? You don't mind making a habit of calling this programme now because whenever I speak to you, it's because you've had a big winner. So 
So much the better. Congratulations. Yeah, I don't mind these calls at all. The more, the better. <laughs> uh, that was a tremendous performance yesterday. I was saying I thought, I thought he was quite commanding, really, in a, in a competitive handicap where, theoretically, there should have been lots firing to the line at a bunch finish. He was, he was decisively on top. He, what a tremendous story he's been. Yeah, like full credit has to go to Spratty. He he sources these horses for me and basically gives me a blank piece of paper and then I've just got to, he sets out the plan and, and I've just got to deliver. And the plan for yesterday, as much as you can make a plan long term with a racehorse, uh, was set in motion when he finished fourth last summer. And um, we thought, they're making this a million pound race. We, it'd be rude of us not to go over and have a go at it. And... Um, that's what we did, and very seldom in our game does it work out, as Kerry said yesterday. And to see it work out, I mean, if you gave me fourth place money before the race that I took your hand off, and that's not being pessimistic, it's just realistic. And um, then to see him win as he did was just phenomenal. I mean, do you feel in himself he's he's actually a better horse now than he was this time last year? Oh, yeah, there's no question. And we knew we knew he would be because mentally he was a work in, pro- in mm. progress. Um we put a hood and earplugs on him because for that five minutes in the parade ring is the only time he uh, he's just a little bit out of our control. And once Colin gets on him, if you noticed him, like once once he gets on him, the horse just gets into a rhythm. Colin got him down behind the gates and he stood, if you watch him behind the gates, he stood in the far corner and Colin's legs out. And that's what the horse does, taking it all in. And once I seen that, I said, we're grand. Um, and then, listen, that was, your horses rated 115. If you were 105, you didn't get into the race. So yeah. anybody who goes into a race like that and thinks they're cocky, they're going to win, are lying. Because, I mean, these are proper race horses, and any one of them could have win on a given day, you know? Yeah, the way the race is framed now, it precludes you from being too clever, clever, doesn't it? Well, essentially, your job is to get the horse there absolutely bouncing and ready to run the race of his life, I guess. Yeah, like if you watch our horse, I mean, it's silly to say, but he was getting prep runs in group races. Mm. Um, And at the same time, you're hoping that the handicapper never drops him too much because, as I said, Aiden's horse was 105 and didn't get in. So, no, the days, I'm not not renowned as a handicap trainer, if you know what I mean. I I don't lay horses out. I I go racing every day. If I don't think I can win a race, it's a bad day. And, and, um, you know the horses handicap themselves as far as I'm concerned but once in a lifetime you get horses of this quality and then you know everything all the stars aligned and we won the first million pound Eber and I mean David was saying that David uh, Yates was saying there that David had to be a second hand car salesman <laughs> to sell this horse it's the quite quite the opposite actually um, David didn't want to sell the horse um, it was me it, we unfortunately a bit like uh, your other guest, we have to sell to say in the game, and I've been selling from the day we started. And when when figures were mentioned to me, I said, "This is six-year-old gelding, rising seven. If he was in any other yard, he'd be jumping a hurdle." I said, "Wake up and take the money." <laughs> so you and, you really you twisted know. his arm. Yeah, and um, maybe for a split mercenary second after the event yesterday, I went, "You clown! What did you make him do that for?" You know, but. Uh, All's good. He heads down to Australia to some new owners, and as I said to them yesterday, the pressure pressure's on them. I've done my job. Do you think he could win a Melbourne Cup? I wouldn't have a clue, Nick. I wouldn't have a breeze. I was talking to Patrick Mullins and Killarney the other morning. Um, he was explaining to me 
how big the occasion is down there. I'm the worst traveller in the world. My wife is goes mad with me. I won't. I won't leave here. Um, and she, they're all joking that you have to go now. And I, I, I wouldn't have a clue. I mean, braver, bigger men than me have tried and failed. Better horses than this guy have tried and failed. I just think it's the most expensive bumper race in the world, and you just need a lot of luck. And <laughs> if our guy has the luck, good luck to him. But, but. Um, I won't lose any sleep over it. As I said, we've won an Eber, and if that's if that's his his plan was the Eber, the Caulfield Cup, and the Melbourne Cup. And as I said to his new owners, if he collects in any one of the t- three, it's job done. You know. Uh, a, a comparisons are odious for sure, but you took that first domestic Group One winner with Siskin not so long ago, and now you've won the the million pound Eber. Is the is the kick you got out of each subtly different or broadly similar? Oh, hugely different, hugely different. Um, as I've said before on numerous occasions, when a racehorse trainer dies, we talk about the big races the man has won, Group 1 races, that's what that means. When, um, you know, so, so to win with Siskin, that's what I'm all about at the moment, is looking for them Group 1 horses. They're very, very hard to find. Even the Group 2 horses, they're very, very hard to find. In fact, some of them are impossible. They're not They're not accessible in that uh, owner breeders have them. And unless you're lucky enough, enough like I was, to have uh, Khaled Abdullah in your yard, you know, Siskin wasn't available to anybody else. Um, so, yesterday... I wasn't nervous going, you know, when they were down at the start, I wasn't nervous or anything like that. But by, you can hear it in my voice. I lost, I'm sitting at home with three dogs watching a big screen and I, I lost my voice shouting at the telly when, when there was never any doubt. Mm. So there were hugely different emotions. Um, yesterday was just a very good achievement of a plan that came to pass um, when we all know that they very, very rarely come to pass. So um, whereas Siskin... I want to retire winning loads of Group 1s, you know, and that's what it's all about. Luck on Sunday, proudly sponsored by Albasti at Cruel Dubai. Welcome back. Delighted to welcome my next guest to Luck on Sunday for this season finale, the most successful amateur rider of all time. To put it quite simply, and one of the most successful amateur riders at the Cheltenham Festival of all time as well. He is, of course, Patrick Mullins. Patrick, good to see you. Thanks so much for having me, Nick. Not at all. And busy boy yesterday, Killarney to Kilbegan, and then back over here in a wretched journey on the plane. So we're very grateful to you for, for, for giving up your time. But uh, people might assume these are, these are quieter months for you. Not so. No, no. Uh, August is probably our busiest month because we have all our winter horses come back in after Goy Festival. And it's always busy um, for us, you know. Over here, you see you see the likes of, of Paul Nichols and Nicky Henderson seem to take the summer off a bit. But in Ireland, with Gordon and Joseph and Willie, we're just full tilt. We, we've had a hundred horses in at all at all stages, so um, there's never a, a moment let up. And you obviously got Galway as a, that focal mm. festival in the summer as well, which has become increasingly important to to your team as well. We heard from from Dermot Well was sitting in in Dave's seat last week, and he he rather ruefully said, "Well, it's Willie Mullins's territory now." Yeah, like I remember growing up, um, obviously the Plate and the Hurdle were very important races. My grandfather uh, had great success in them, and um, but we never really would have aimed around Galway. Whereas now uh, it's become. Uh, as you say, the focal point of our summer. So from after Punchestown, we are aiming horses for Galway. And uh, 
Willie has taken it a lot more seriously, um, as has the likes of Aidan and Joseph. So it's, it's, it's hugely competitive. And is the business now more multidimensional than it was when even you started assisting your, your parents? Uh, it's definitely busier. Like, like Our summers were never as busy as they, they are now. I think summer racing has become a lot more important. I think they've done a great job watering tracks, keeping grounds safe. Um, we've got some great clerks, of course, to have um, the tracks in pristine condition. And the prize money during the summer is good as well. So yeah. it offers a lot of opportunities for um, you know horses that uh, maybe can't be competitive during the winter. You had two runners in, in yesterday's Ebor as well. Dear old Max Dynamite, former runner-up in the Melbourne Cup. And True Self, I thought she ran an absolute screamer. I mean, she looked like the likeliest winner of Furlong Out. She did. Um, actually, myself and a friend um, bought her for... Uh, she was unsold at 20 sterling at a sale after being second in the True Bumper. And we bought her. Um, and my father saw her when she got off the box. And she was trio filly after having a hard race, going to sales, travelling to Ireland. And he said to me, please tell me you didn't buy her. <laughs> So, of course, I, I moved her on quite quickly, and I haven't let him forget that. Um, but she, she's been an absolute freak. You know, an Oscar mayor, she ran a blinder, done a gave her a fantastic ride. Looked like she possibly just didn't stay, which, to be fair, Colin Keane had always been saying, you know, a mile and two, a mile and four, it was no problem to her. So we might possibly drop her back in trip, and um, her owner is never eager. They get great sport out of her, and uh, I'm sure there's more fun to be had with her. But 20 grand, I mean, you got more than that for finishing six yesterday. Uh, yeah, well, it's 15, a bit less, but um, no, but it's brilliant. Like Neville and um, a couple of his friends, the owner, and they get great sport out of her. You know, they go over with a, with a group of fellas every day, and that's, that's great to see. Do you think you'll become more of a force on the, on the flat? I mean, you've already had amazing success in some of the cup races and know about the raids to the Melbourne Cup, which so nearly came off. Do you think it'll become a bigger and bigger part of the, of the business? Um, in the longer distance races, you know, we, we're very lucky that we can buy uh, good quality flat horses, go hurdling, and then if they don't make the cut as hurdlers, they can come back. Um, so, you know, in, in the kind of mile and six, two mile races, even back to mile and four sometimes, um, but I don't see us being like Jesse Harrington or Joseph, you know, uh, and having lots of two-year-olds and three-year-olds. I mean, what Jesse is doing is extraordinary uh, with her two-year-olds this year. Um, no, we, we have a handful every year, but Willie made a decision uh, a couple of years ago to concentrate on jumping, and I think that's what we'll, what we'll do. And when they don't make the cut for jumping, we might bring them back for long-distance flat races. And from your own perspective, I, I said you're the most successful amateur rider of, of all time. You've won any number of, of Cheltenham Festival races and bumpers and hurdles and, and chases and what have you. Are there many, are there many personal riding ambitions that you've, you've got left to achieve? Uh, lots, yeah. Oh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, what, yeah. What, would be the, what would be the top of the list? Um, well, I'd love, to win, um, I'd love to win the GBT in Galway. Uh, Oberg Mann's won it twice and Jordan Towning did it this year for Willie. So, unfortunately, I think that the... The, the winners seem to carry too little weight for me, um, which, which isn't ideal. But maybe one one year, well, Willie won it with a horse called Paragon, he had 12 stone seven, but those days are gone, unfortunately. Uh, I was second to Kim Yor, and that's a race I'd love to win. Uh, I think Willie's never won a handicap chase at Cheltenham, so I'll probably have to start maybe uh, um, getting off his horses in it. Um, the Fox Hunters in Aintree, and I'd love to ride a winner in Autoy before I retire, that'd be great. And I need one more title to beat Ted Walsh's record of, of titles, titles, even so, though you've way past his, his, uh, his record now. So, are you up to sort of 600-odd now? No, I'm, I'm in about 593 or 4. So no, I, 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 I'm all right. I'm within five. Yeah. I'd have got that right on University Challenge, wouldn't I, Dave? You would you get five <laughs> or six either way? Yeah, probably. I don't watch it, but I, I imagine that's about right. Yeah. But that is, a, that is a remarkable total for an amateur writer, yeah, even though he's only an amateur by name. 
it's, it's astonishing. Um, I was... It, I, I don't know if you've got this question, my least planned, but I, I was quite interested, Patrick, to know what you would think about the, the changes that they made to the to the National Hunt Chase that were that were announced, that coming back in distance, obviously fewer obstacles, a, a, a higher qualification... For the for, rider. For the rider. Um, yeah, like, last year's race wasn't ideal. Um, England is a very different country than Ireland, and I don't have a problem with a lot of the, you know, the, the qualifications for the jockeys and the horses is fine. Um, I, I have one question um, over... That, that the change in distance is... Um, the start of that race was a fantastic start. Three furlings, three fences. You could line up wide, go forward. If you jump well, you'd be able to get a position. You didn't mind lining up wide. The start now is 100 metres to the first fence, followed by a sharp, long downhill left-hand turn. So I wonder, is there going to be a funnel effect into the first and into the first bend? Uh, I wonder about that. And for me, if there is an issue with the formal chase it's that an, it's a novice chase with 18 runners can you name me another novice chase with a full field not really it's a handicap size field for novice horses um, and a lot of them haven't run in handicaps uh, I would have thought perhaps bringing the limit of from 18 down to maybe 14 would have created a you have less horses so you have less fallers um, but you have less pace because there's less horses, and you'd have more space at the fences. So you're removing a little bit of the chaos factor. That's potentially. What I would have thought like it's it's a handicap size field. You don't see the Arkle, the JLT, the RSA with 18 runners. Um, you see them with eight, ten, maybe twelve. Uh, that's what I would have thought. But look, I'd be, I'll be very interested to see how how, how it goes. Um, perhaps the start will be fine. Um, but uh, I I think. I'd be, I'd be interested to see how it goes. Yeah. Did you get asked what you thought? Um, we actually made it, myself, Derek, and Jamie through our amateur association sent a letter asking, you know, to be involved in um, any discussions. And uh, we we got an email telling us about a week ago, telling us what the changes were going to be and that they were going to be released next Monday. But we weren't um, asked as such, which was a little disappointing. I mean, I know Ruby feels the same as I do about the start, um, and you would have thought perhaps talking to people um, that are riding in the race uh, would have been um, beneficial. That's quite an interesting point, I think, here, Dave, and one that's worth picking up on, because I think it's right as a regulator you have to be quite bold, and sometimes you need to shut out the surround sound. But in an instance like this, where Patrick's brought up a very specific point about safety, yeah. then I think you need to make sure you listen to experienced constituents carefully. Yeah, I, I've got to be careful what I say here. I think that the BHA often consult the people or try and appeal to people that there's not really an awful lot of point in trying to do that and I think that's, that I think that why you would not consult an amateur jockeys association and the leading practitioners therein when you're, you know, what, what you've just said about the start is something that hadn't occurred to me. I was asked to comment. N nor me. I, I was asked I, to comment. I haven't ridden in the damn race, have I? So I, I was asked to comment about the changes, and I thought, and, and I sort of said, well, yeah, distance, mm. meh. The, the, the qualification of the jockeys, I certainly think, is a, is a good thing. But I've no, no idea about how the start would work out. And I do wonder if that's. if. Many people making the decision 
would appreciate that either. And, and, and I could be wrong. I, the start might work out. But, fine, but, but why, you know, and, and we, we, we had a, a, a meeting about the compressed foam a few uh, months ago. James Willoughby and I were at it, and we were, we were invited by the BHA to contribute to that in the future. We've not heard a dicky bird since then. And, and I, I think that uh, I, I think it's, it's a nonsense not to, not to consult leading amateurs. Isn't it? They're not giving you the rule book to write, but why would you not seek? Even if you choose to take your submission, screw it up into a ball and volley it out of the window, at least why, why would you not seek the, the views of... Of people like Patrick, it just seems like a, just seems a nonsense to me to, to present it. You know, you're too polite to say this, but to, but what what they've done is to present a fait accompli to you. Luck on Sunday, proudly sponsored by Albasti at Cruel Dubai. Delighted to welcome my final guest to the season finale of Luck on Sunday. We've been trying to pin him down for some time. He's been somewhat elusive, but he is here now. And he has had a pretty glorious career as a trainer as well. After a long and glorious career as an assistant trainer to the, the legendary Jeremy Tree, from whom he took over at Beckhampton right at the turn of the decade from the 80s into the 90s. And that first season with a licence, he just won the derby and he won the French derby and he was second in the Irish derby and he's remained pretty near the top of that tree, pun intended, ever since. He is, of course, the master of Beckhampton, Roger Charlton. Roger, good morning and welcome. Good morning, Nick. I, I say you, um, you took over at the end of a, a very successful period as an assistant. You were, you were an assistant trainer for a long time before you, um, you, you yeah. got your hands on the licence um, at Beckhampton. I've been lucky to sort of be in the right place at the right time. Um, I had a swimming pool in Lambourne, and Jeremy Tree used to swim horses there. And even if they hadn't swum for three months, he's, every time it won, he said, oh, Roger Charlton trained that one for me. So he was very generous. And then when I sold the swimming pool to Nicky Henderson, um, I was at a bit of a loss as to where I was going to go, and he invited me to come to Beckhampton um, as his assistant. And he said, on the basis that I'm looking for somebody who's young to uh, find some new owners and you know, reinvigorate the yard to a certain extent. And, um, you know, I won't give up until Mr. Whitney um, passes on, and he'd been ill for some time, and he'd been a huge supporter of the yard. And it was a sort of assumed that it might be two or three years, and in fact it was 12 and a half years. And a lot of my friends um, sort of said, well, you know, he's never going to give up, and, and you're wasting your time, and all your friends are training, and, you know, need to get on with it but it was um, a great place to be and I was extremely lucky to have a, a, a major um, trainer to, to teach me really um, and you know I was really lucky to to have those horses subsequently. When you look at trainers today who are in their say early to mid 20s and they're quite impatient and impetuous and they're saying well it's about time I need to get out on my own and do you sometimes look at them and think no no just hold on well it's a brave world isn't it it's a tough one um, you know finding finding a yard obviously yards in Newmarket are in much demand we've seen a few change hands recently mm. and they certainly haven't been going cheaply um, 
Yeah, I mean, I think that the, the worry always is having enough horses and indeed having good horses. And um, the risk of failure is always quite high, I think, in most people's minds. You can go the wrong way, get the wrong horses, get a virus, things go badly, maybe train them badly. But it's, uh, it's a competitive sport. You need to be right up there and you need a huge amount of luck. And having the background that you had, essentially dealing with horses nearer the top of the top of the tree, you know, the horses that were good, yeah. quality, well-bred animals, the Whitney horses and then the, the Prince Khaled Abdullah horses. Did you feel that was really always the road you wanted to go down? You were a quality man rather than a numbers man? Well, I think you need to be able to train anything, really. Um, you know, if you've got something that's fast and ready to go early, then you want to get on with it. Um, we were lucky at Beckhampton to have the support of some very good owner breeders, particularly Judmont Farms. And, you know, their, their aim was to produce classic horses, really. Although initially we had known fact and a beer won the Queen Mary in the early days. But we were lucky, you know, Rainbow Crest was a pretty special horse. Dane Hill was phenomenal. And, you know, what a, what a contribution he's made to breeding throughout the world. Um, I think what I learned from Jeremy Tree was patience is required. Um, having a plan... And, and being adaptable, the plans can change, but not to suddenly say, well, we'll run next week instead. You know, you want those horses to improve. Um, I don't like seeing horses going downhill, and you do see sometimes horses running in races that, you know, used to win group races. I, I really want to, my challenge is always to improve, and we've been lucky to have had horses that have improved, mm. obviously with Hold as an example. Um, and I think ultimately we're there to make stallions, um, you know, the, to, to win races and, and market horses so that they either sold well or end up being stallions. I, I scarcely remember um, Jeremy Tree. What kind of man was he? You hear such legendary tales of him. You'd have liked him. Um, he loved young people. Um, Andrew Balding, I think, was a godson. Um, along with many others and you know he, he'd go to the races and always be giving him you know the equivalent of a fiver was probably 10 bob note in those days um, he was always encouraging people um, I had a young family and he was amazing with them he was very good with them he was a very bright man um, I think a lot of people thought he was quite spoilt he came from a sort of rich family um, and he, he, like a lot of people, did a bit of work in the city and hated it, and then he started training, and he started training his own horses because he had inherited two or three mares. But he really minded. I mean, he never missed going out first lot. If we were at the races, he always, always wanted to get back for evening stables if it was possible. And he'd wake up some mornings and say, I had a terrible night last night, and sort of, sort of pre-race nerves, um, didn't sleep at all. Whereas people sort of saw him as a sort of, um, you know, a, I don't know what, sort of large, rotund figure that, you know, smoked cigars and had the good things in life and, you know, dare I say it, probably thought he had a silver spoon in his mouth and it was kind of easy for him. But he was a very good trainer, a very intelligent man, trained a lot of good horses and um, he was good to learn from. Um, you could work for a trainer and never be put in a position of making a decision. Um, he would suddenly say, we were looking at a work list, he'd say, right, you do it today. 
And I thought, well, I hadn't sort of thought about it, I didn't know what to do, but you knew after that you had to absolutely have every angle covered in case, he said, who's going to work with what, who's going to ride it, how far are they going to work, when are we going to run it, what, you know, we'd be going to Epsom, and then, you know, Bellotto was running in the derby, and Pat Edry was riding, and he said, right, you're giving the riding instructions today, what will you say to Pat Edry? Well, you know, most assistants aren't necessarily consulted, but you have to get into the driving position. Mm. You have to make those decisions. You have to think about the decisions. You have to think about the vet. You have to think about what you tell the owner. Are you going to tell the owner that it was lame yesterday or was coughing? You know, there's a lot of grey areas in life, and you need to, you need to have that experience and, and those challenges. It, it takes somebody of, of great magnanimity to be able to identify talent and then delegate to, to that talent rather than be a complete control freak, particularly in, in, in this environment. Do you adopt much the same policy with the people who work for you? Yes. Um, again, staff are hugely important. Um, we've got people at Beckhampton been there a long time. Uh, my head lad actually came before me and I think I've been there 40 years this year. And um, yeah, I think we're lucky there. And, and I think that there are lots of pressures that have been discussed on stable staff. And to have experienced people with knowledge, I think it's important to delegate. I think it's important to promote people. I think young people need promotion, jockeys as well. Uh, I'm very luckily um, aided by my son, Harry, who's been with me um, several years now, and my son, Tom, who's in Australia have been a huge encouragement and help. Um, and I think it's a huge, you know, I think I'm lucky. I can think of several trainers um, probably wish they had a son that were interested in what they're doing because it's not a business that you can suddenly say, right, that's it, I'm selling up, I'm going. It's not easy, you can't sell your clients. So um, to continue something that is special, particularly Beckhampton, which has now been successfully training racehorses for 200 years, and, you know, Noel Merlis and... Darlings and I don't know ten Derby winners. It, you know, it's a pretty special place. I was interested in the interview that Andrew Balding gave uh, today, where he said, "I'm the custodian of Kingsclear. I don't want to be the one that messes this up." Is, yeah. Was there a bit of that with you when, yeah, you, when totally, you took over? Yeah, totally. I mean, I thought, you know there were legends that went before me, and I thought, you know, it's no good just having naught to sixty handicappers. You know, you need proper horses. Mm. We need to keep this place going. It is very expensive to run. And it runs on good horses, um, prize money um, and selling horses. Otherwise, those places don't last. And it's somewhat misleading, really, of me to introduce you as the man who had the overnight success, because, of course, you've been so instrumental in the Dane Hills and the Rainbow Quest and all these horses in the, in the years preceding it. But the, the record books will show that in your first season with a license, you trained yeah. the winner of the Derby, it's the British Jockey Club, and you yeah. nearly got the, the triple yeah. up in the Irish Derby. Yeah. I mean, <clears throat> I felt a bit of a fraud, really. Um, Jeremy Tree... Um, told me when he was going to retire, and he'd actually been quite ill the year before he retired, and and you know he'd sort of had a stroke and various things, and um, but he handed me you know nearly three aces out of four. Mm. Um, they were they weren't brilliant horses actually. Um, they were the three of them, Deploy, Sanglemore, and Quest for Fame, were really on ratings and on gallops were within a length or so of each other. We didn't have a lead horse in those days. We had 60 horses, probably 33-year-olds, um, 
15 cults. So you've got three of them out of 15. And, um, you know, when they worked, there was nothing between. One led one week and one led the next week. And um, to really win, win, win those races and nearly win an Irish... Irish Derby, if it hadn't been for Sheikh Hamdan supplementing Salsabil. Very inconsiderate of him. Very inconsiderate of him. Um, and actually, I felt sorry for Barry Hills, um, you know, great trainer, and he was second with Blue Stag in this That's race. Right. For the fourth or fifth yeah, time, I think. Yeah, and you know, there's some ridiculous rookie trainer who just jumps in and, 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 and wins a race like that is, is kind of a bit unfair, I thought. And interestingly, um, the, the only two horses in that derby that actually stayed the trip were the first two. Every other horse, including, I think, was he called Dr. Brooks or Mr. Brooks? Mr. Brooks. Who was, ended up, I think, Lester Reddit or something? Ended up being champion sprinter. And, uh, being Mr. a sprinter. Brooks. And the rest dropped back to being mile and a quarter. And, of course, you know, the derby doesn't... You do need proper stayers. Luck on Sunday, proudly sponsored by Albasti at Cruel, Dubai. You've been listening to the Luck on Sunday podcast, the weekly digest of the best bits from Luck on Sunday, the programme that brings you the best guests and insights from around the racing world.